You're listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go, a podcast that'll change how you think and change your life. I'm Willie Horton and I'm a psychologist. I've been helping people change their lives since 1996. Broadcasting from the French Alps and delighted to have you along. Let's take this week's step in the right direction. Over recent weeks, we've been talking about the need to take action rather than just set your mind, sit back and wait for some magic to happen. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about opportunity and synchronicity. We've been talking about setting our mind. And as you know from various podcast episodes over the last couple of years, I've often talked about how to do just that. How to handwrite what I call a perfect moment. Something that your subconscious mind can get its arms around and teeth into so that it can, free of your thinking mind, enable you to do just what you need to do to get to where you want to go. And obviously, over the last couple of years, we've been talking about meditation. Meditation that develops the presence of mind and the clarity of mind in the here and now to enable you know where you are, know what's going on, and know what you need to do, and just do it. These are all the ingredients of living your life your way, living your life to the full. I want to tell you a story in this episode that beautifully illustrates how those various different ingredients come together to make a wonderful cake, I suppose. It's the easiest way to put it. I recollect a couple of years ago, just before I tell you that story, somebody on one of our online program owners' Zoom calls talking about how many years ago, when I met him first, he wanted his dream job and he had a list of things that that dream job must have. I said to him, that's a list of ingredients. That is not how your mind works. The mind works on the basis of what the outcome will look and feel like. You're not going to get your dream job with a list, a checklist, a shopping list that has to be ticked off. After a number of years, frustrated, he became one of the first people who bought the online program when it was launched in late 2018. And within a number of weeks, having gone through the program at high speed because of his frustration, because of where he found himself in his life at that point in time, he had written a perfect moment where he wrote about how he felt when he came out of an interview having got his dream job. Didn't go into any of the detail as to what the dream job was, who the employer was, when this would happen, or how it would come about. The perfect ingredients of the perfect moment. Two weeks later, he signed the contract for his dream job. Our program owners group on Zoom was one of the first group of people to be told about his great news after a number of years of seeking and not finding. 
a fortnight later on our follow-up Wednesday evening Zoom. We have them every fortnight. He said, funnily enough, about a week after I got my dream job, out of a book on my bookcase fell my original shopping list, what you described as a list of ingredients. And he said, the funny thing is that the dream job that I have now got ticks all the boxes. What do you think of that? And I said to him, well, if you're going to bake a perfect cake, it won't be a perfect cake unless it has all the right ingredients. This story that I'm about to tell you has ingredients in abundance. Many, many years ago, I was probably only doing this for a couple of years, and at the time, the way I did it was through small group workshops in golf clubs in South County Dublin, nice quiet places where people could go out for a walk around the golf course, not on the golf course. Obviously, we didn't want to get them injured or breaking the rules for that matter. Can't have people breaking rules. <laughs> uh, we'll leave that one aside for now. But this is how I did it in those days. And maybe six or seven people would turn up to each of those workshops, which I ran every every month or so. On one of those early workshops, I had an individual who worked for one of the big banks. Hardly a surprise at the time because my background had been in financial services and banking. And an awful lot of the people who were clients at the outset came from my own background. This guy was a risk manager for one of the big banks. We'll name no names, protect the guilty. And over the course of what was at the time a three-day workshop, we talked about obviously meditation. We meditated together and we talked about how to set your mind and how to handwrite a perfect moment. And on the third day, each of the individuals would take a little time to themselves to handwrite a perfect moment. One that, in the peace and calm and clarity and quiet of those few days, sprang to mind. Now, let me take a little detour for a moment. Because most people, when I ask them first, what do you want out of life, don't know the answer. Most people think they know the answer, as we've discussed before, on the basis of what looks and feels like the success that other people have, that you might like some of. But in the peace and clarity of three days in a South County Dublin golf club, pennies drop. So by the third day, people have some clarity or perhaps absolute clarity on at least the very first perfect moment they should write. So this guy wrote his perfect moment. And it's one of the few perfect moments of which I know all the details because obviously over the years, thousands of people with whom I've worked have written perfect moments. Most of those perfect moments have never been shared with me. They're private perfect moments, but this guy shared his perfect moment with me before he left the golf club on the Thursday afternoon. And it went something like this. I'm sitting on my yacht, bobbing up and down, on the ocean. My two boys 
are running up and down the deck, trimming the sails. My hand is over the side of the boat and I can reach down and put my fingertips in the water. It's cold. I have a barbecue slung over the side of the boat and the smoke coming off the couple of steaks that I have there for me and the boys and it's getting in my eyes. I have a cold beer in my hand that I've just taken out of a cool box and there's condensation on the tin of beer. So it's slippy in my hand. I psh, it open and I take a mouthful and the bubbles of the beer dance and sparkle on my tongue. I can feel the breeze on my face, the sun on my forehead. And as I look out across the water, I see how the sun has splintered into little triangles of light on the choppy water. As I look across the bay to my house with the red roof. Now, there's a lot more detail involved in what he wrote, but that's the gist of it. He's sitting on a boat with his two sons, having a perfect moment. Now, I should say at this stage that obviously, like most of my clients in those days, he lived in Dublin. He lived in North County, Dublin, and he had a little boat. We're not talking about a, a, an 80-foot ocean-going liner here. We're talking about, or at least he subsequently told me, we were talking about a medium-sized boat, nothing, nothing grand, nothing fancy. And he had a little boat, and his kids would come out with him from time to time. That is what prompted him to write the moment in the way in which he wrote it. Let's just bear that in mind. North County, Dublin. Three or four months later, he took himself, his wife, and his two boys on holidays to Disneyland in Florida. And while he was there in Disneyland, he got a phone call from a friend of his at work who told him that one of the girls who worked for him in his office had been promoted to be his new boss. She leapfrogged over him and was now the person to whom he would report the minute he landed back in Dublin after his blissful holiday in the States. It didn't ruin his holiday because he knew how to control his state of mind. He knew how to manage the initial spurt of anger that would come from something like that. The feeling of betrayal that would come from something like that. He was pretty senior in the bank and he'd done a very good job for them at a time when they were taking risks that subsequently in 2008 they discovered they shouldn't have been taking at all. But he felt betrayed. As I say, it didn't ruin the holiday, but it certainly put something of a cloud over his mood as he landed back in Dublin a couple of days later. He went into what he told me his wife told him was something of a dark depression, just for a few days. He would come home early from work, something he hadn't done for a long, long time. He would go to bed early in the evenings and he would lie in on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And after a few weeks of this, his wife came into him on a Saturday morning and she said to him, you need to pull yourself together. 
I'm not putting up with this nonsense. You need to remember what you learned on those three days in Milltown Golf Club. You need to get your head straight and you need to remember what you wrote. That perfect moment that you wrote on the Thursday afternoon in Milltown Golf Club. And she said, while you've been lying in bed, I've been looking at yesterday morning's Irish Times. Now, in those days, people still read paper newspapers. So she had come into the bedroom on a Saturday morning with a paper folded in four underneath her arm with a circle around a small ad in the appointments section of the Irish Times from the previous day. She said, I want you to send your CV off to this ad. She said, I'm not sure exactly who it is. It doesn't say who it is. It's nearly like a P.O. box ad, although there is what looks like a fairly anonymous email to which you're supposed to send your CV. He turned around the bed and he said, read me, read me what it says. She said, senior risk management required for major international bank. Send your CV to whatever the email address. He turned around to look at her and he said, yeah. He said, I know, you're right, being a bit of a fool. He said, I'll get up now and I'll polish up my CV and I'll do as you've told me to do, basically. So he put together his CV, emailed it off to that fairly anonymous email address without knowing as to whom he was applying for a job. Three or four days went by, no response. Another week went by, no response. Now, the normal thinking mind would suggest that that's a dead duck. Nothing's happened. And you start wondering why nothing has happened. Then you start wondering whether something will ever happen. It's the normal way of thinking. But he just went about his business in the bank that had done the dirty on him. He still came home early in the evening. It isn't that he didn't give a damn anymore. He was diligent. He did his job, but he didn't overdo his job. Then, but 10 days later, he gets an email from a recruiter who says, we'd like to interview you. You'll need to come to London for the interview. We suggest that we actually pay for your flight and overnight accommodation and flights and accommodation for your wife as well. She can have a look around the shops while we're talking to you. How does that sound? A couple of days later, they found themselves in Kensington, in London. Half past 10 in the morning, he said goodbye to his wife after a nice breakfast. She went off to the shops, as one might do on a visit to London. And he went towards the recruiter's office where his appointment was at 11 o'clock. They'd arranged between them that they'd meet for lunch after the event. Went into the office told them who he was. He was sat down. 11 o'clock came. Nothing happened. Quarter past, half past. At 10 past 12, somebody came out to him and said, we're ready for you now. So he went inside into a room with three people on an interview panel. The person who had come out to him from the room, somebody he'd never seen before, and the person who had been masquerading as a receptionist watching his every move as he sat there for an hour and 10 minutes. 
He wasn't in the best of form as a result of that. Now, he should have known better, but that's beside the point. He did the interview. He told me subsequently that the interview kind of flowed over him. He couldn't remember any of the details. He couldn't remember what he said. He didn't even know if he'd said the right things. He just did the interview, got out of there at about half past one, tracked down his wife, and they had a late lunch together. On the flight back that evening, they talked about how he'd been messed around by the interviewers, how the recruiter was playing mind games with him, and came to the conclusion that, at the very least, they'd got a nice little trip to London. Another week passed, another week passed, and eventually he got an email from the recruiter saying that one of the biggest banks in New Zealand wanted to recruit him to work in their head office in New Zealand as their senior risk manager. The two of them looked at each other and said, well, you wanted a new job, but we ain't moving 14,000 miles to the other side of the world and uprooting our two sons for a new job. They'd want to be paying you a fortune. She said to him, what does it say about that in the email? He said, there's nothing about remuneration in the email at all. She said, email them back and tell them you won't move to the other side of the world for less than X, some grand amount of money beyond his wildest dreams. So he emailed them back with words to that effect and got a direct response saying, all right, okay, no worries on that front. The remuneration that we had in mind was nearly 1.5 times X. The email finished by saying, we will forward you details of the terms and conditions and the moving package, because we'll pay for your move to the other side of the world with all your effects. We'll email you with those details in a couple of days. So now my friend and his wife found themselves with a decision to make. They sat down over dinner and a bottle of wine that evening, and his wife said to him, I'm still not taking the plunge on something this dramatic unless I get a sign. They were her exact words. She was looking for a sign. She was looking, if you like, for a sign from the universe. He went into work the following morning. And at this stage, his bank was recruiting a number of new people for his department, and he had been given the task of doing the initial sifting through of the CVs that had come in. Now, remember, we're back in the days when paper was still used. And when he arrived in the office that following morning, there was a pile of CVs on his desk. And right on the top of the pile of CVs was a CV from a lady head of risk management in the bank in New Zealand in which he had just been offered effectively her job. She was applying for a job in Dublin because she wanted to move back to Ireland to bring up her children in Ireland. To say that he was gobsmacked. I mean, what kind of more blatant sign could you actually get than something like that? I lost touch with him. Not everybody stays in touch with me all the time. 
But about two years later, I got an email from him. He said, I was out on my yacht with my boys in Bucklands Bay in New Zealand yesterday. He said, we were bobbing up and down on the water. My sons were running up and down the boat, trimming the sails and doing whatever people do on a yacht. He said, I had my arm over the side of the boat and my fingertips were being tickled by the cold water. The smoke from the barbecue on which I had a couple of steaks was getting in my eyes and I cracked open a can of beer, pst, took a gulp and felt the bubbles sparkle and dance on my tongue. He said, I looked up at the sky, the clear blue sky, felt the sun on my face, the breeze on my face, looked out across the water, noticed how the water was broken into little shards and triangles of light by the sunlight. I looked across Buckland's Bay to my house with the red roof. And just as I saw the red roof, I realized this is exactly what I wrote almost word for word. I need to tell Horton. He had moved to New Zealand. A couple of 40 foot trailers had moved all his belongings to New Zealand with him, including his little yacht. He had bought the house that the person who was moving back to Ireland had lived in. There was no house hunting even involved. And as a result of the America's Cup taking place in New Zealand, the first year they arrived there, both his sons got an opportunity to be part of the crew of the Ireland team for that world event. Things had just fallen into place effortlessly. He said to me, it's like as if it all just fell into my lap. And I said to him, no, you're wrong. Because every step of the way, you had to do what you had to do every step of the way. First of all, you had to send off your CV. That's an action. Secondly, you had to get on a plane to London. Action. Thirdly, you had to do the interview. Action. And on and on and on, including getting on a plane and flying to the other side of the world and trusting that the couple of 40-foot containers with their life's possessions would arrive the other side of the world with. At every step of the way, action was required. Indeed, right at the outset, his wife's action is what spurred the whole chain of events. So that's the first lesson from this story. Because a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the secret and the law of attraction and how people have got the wrong end of the stick in thinking that all you have to do is imagine that your perfect moment will happen. Sit back and wait for it to happen. The world doesn't work that way. Action was required at every step of the way. That's the first lesson. The second lesson from this is that when uncertainty arose on the journey, they were presented with signposts, what his wife had called a sign. 
It's what we talked about in the episode where we explored synchronicity. Something happening that is so blindingly obvious to move you in a particular direction that not only can you not ignore it, but you actually, once again, have to take action. This is all about action. When you are bold enough and brave enough to take the kind of action that my friend took, that his wife took, that his sons took, then the universe rewards you with abundance. But the interesting thing is that when you are in flow, being led forward towards the coordinates that you initially gave to your subconscious mind when you wrote the perfect moment at the outset, when you are in that kind of flow, taking that kind of action, it's neither brave nor courageous. It is just the right thing to do in the right way at the right time to get you to where you want to go. But there's another very important lesson from this story as well. And that is that at the outset, while he was in Florida on holidays, something happened to him. His bank effectively demoted. That didn't happen to him. If that hadn't happened, he wouldn't be living the perfect life in the perfect place, living and experiencing those perfect moments the other side of the world. The bank did that for him. All too often in life, when we experience something that we believe to be bad happening to us, we forget to understand, to realize, and to appreciate that what is happening at every step of the way, in every now, is when we let it, moving us forward to the life that is best for us, the life that we could never imagine for ourselves. Obviously, when my friend wrote, hand wrote, that perfect moment in Milltown Golf Club a couple of years prior to his sailing the seven seas the other side of the world, he assumed that his perfect moment would take place in Hoth or Malahide in North County Dublin by the sea. That is certainly how his thinking mind would have seen it. He, however, had the wit and the clarity of mind not to fill in those details when he wrote the perfect moment. Here is the key lesson from this particular story. When you write a perfect moment, you need to write about the joy of experiencing the perfect moment. And what you're seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling and tasting without ever filling in any detail in relation to where it is, when it is, or how you got there. The where, the other side of the world, the how. Somebody's CV landing on top of a pile of CVs in his old job. The how, the adventure that was involved, the actions that needed to be taken that his thinking mind could never have imagined him taking. 
There are really only two things you need to do to live your life to the full. Number one, turn up to your life. You're not going to be able to live your life at all if you don't turn up to it. Turn up to the here and now, because that is when your life is lived. And number two, know why you've turned up to the here and now. Know where you're going. Know in a way that your subconscious mind has the coordinates of the perfect moment without any plan in place as to how you will get there. Because, as I know, not just from this story, but many stories that I have from many clients and online program owners over the years, know that when your subconscious mind has the coordinates, it will take you on a magical mystery tour to places that your thinking mind could never have imagined. You've been listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go. To get involved, join me in my Facebook group, strangely enough called To Succeed, Just Let Go. And for more information, visit www.willie-horton.com.